American Heritage. My name is Ed Bondarenka, and I am not your normal fluffy insurrectionist. And my pronouns are thee and thou, but if you do not use them, I will not call the pronoun police and have you arrested. We'll be good. Working the board and the phone lines is Derek Stone, who has a show called Stone Cold Sports, and it airs Sundays at noon 30, right after my friend Sean Todd, the Rock and Rev, on the intersection at noon. You should listen because it's not your normal fluffy Christian show. Now remember, this show is available by podcast also. Tell your friends to listen. Go to whamradio.com slash podcast or the podcast tab to get the link. Man, it's May already. It may rain. It may snow. It may do anything. But it's day 472 of the coup, the theft of the American government by enemies both foreign and domestic. I said this last week, and I'll say it again. If you do not believe that the election was stolen because it was never proven in a court, then, of course, Benedict Arnold was not a traitor because he was never convicted in a court of law. And D.B. Cooper never hijacked an airliner because he was never convicted in a court of law. Well, the overwhelming preponderance of evidence points to the theft of this election by extra legal means. The changing of voting rules by governors and courts that had no constitutional authority to do so swayed this election. And the Dinesh D'Souza film, 2000 Mules, came out this week and should be available streaming tomorrow. In it, he demonstrates undeniably how people collected votes repeatedly in violation of law and delivered them to collection points for money. And the special prosecutor in Wisconsin, who has proven the collection of ballots from people and filling them out themselves the way they wanted the votes to go, that's wrong. The administration is destroying our economy and our ability to feed our families and support ourselves. They're attempting to intimidate and silence us with their own Orwellian disinformation governance board, which I find so aptly titled as they attempt to govern us with disinformation. Have they no self-awareness? Now, these radical deviants are attempting to normalize their perversions on the American people and the in-your-face manner in which they do it calls for a response. The Supreme Court suffered a major blow this week when a leftist staffer leaked a memo about the intent of some of the justices to overturn Roe v. Wade. This led to death threats against some justices and calls for protests at their home, with security fencing being erected all around the Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court has never been infallible, and it's necessary that they correct their mistakes. In 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson ruled that segregation was legal, and earlier in Dred Scott, they had ruled that slavery was legal. It looks like they're going to overturn the reach of Roe v. Wade. Now, I want to know, is this an answer to prayer? I think so. I think we've been praying hard enough about it. Uh, what else What else could, could conceivably bring around this turn of heart on the Supreme Court? So what I want to know, is this the turning of our nation from this sin? Will God forgive us? I think so. Remember, the Democrats are for the rampant killing of babies, not just in the womb, but they're promoting post-gestational or perinatal abortion. Well, the real name for this is infanticide. But the Disinformation Governance Board won't tell you that, will they? This is spiritual warfare, good versus eagle, Baal worship, and the sacrifice to Moloch. Remember that under the ancient pagan gods like Moloch, children were passed through the fire, burned as an offering to the satanic creation to gain its financial blessing on the household of the parents of the dead baby they killed. Leviticus 18.20 says, moreover, 
You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch. We must continue to pray that this assault on our nation's humanity is ended. Psalm 144 says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge. Clasp your hands together, please. Your fingers together. Bow your heads and let's pray. Let's go to war. Father, we come before you and we ask you to protect us from these oppressors. We ask them, we ask that you bring them to a place of repentance, which is often called a penitentiary. And we ask that you inform and motivate those who aren't informed or motivated to rise to the defense of our nation and righteousness, that you would move across this land with a great awakening to help us as a country to be awake and not woke. That as the statue in Detroit says from 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So as for these political oppressors, the unconstitutional tyrants and dictators, Psalm 109, when he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and another take his office. It goes on to say in verse 26, help me, O Lord, my God, O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. Let them arise. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. So we need to continue in prayer for our country. Thanks. Joining us today is former Detroit Chief of Police, James Craig. And I usually play that clip when I've got Dave Coleman on, but I can't find it right at the moment. The views and opinions of Ed Bondarenko are not necessarily those of his guests. So I'm not sure I'll be opening phone lines today as I've got a lot of questions for Chief Craig and I trust he has a lot of answers. So Chief Craig is running for governor of this great state of Michigan. To do that, he has to prevail over the other 10 contenders for the primary election in August. We have had some of them on this show before to give them a platform where they can comfortably present themselves to the voters without the time constraints of most media appearances. Somebody I know who does not want his name mentioned on air said, hey dad, I just met Jeff, Chief Craig at the Sportsman Club and heard what he had to say. Well, I'd like our audience to have the same opportunity and see if the chief is the person they want to govern the state. Hi, Chief. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ed. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, uh, let me start off with an apology. I know that you've been trying for some weeks to get me on your show. And uh, unfortunately, one of my staffs uh, didn't make it happen. So... I was certainly glad to have uh, run into your son and certainly Blake, one of my very competent staff members. Uh, we made it happen. So again, apologies are in order and uh, thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm taking a day out of your busy day on a nice sunny Saturday afternoon. That's a, um, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a sacrifice right there that both of us are making, right? Right. So let's begin by you giving us a brief biography where you were born, where you went to schools and previous positions you've held. Okay, great. Um, so your, your son heard my story, so I guess I'll go through what I generally say when I'm out talking to so many different Michiganders. I was in fact born in the great city of Detroit, uh, grew up to uh, by and inspired by my late mother and my dad who raised me a conservative. They were both very conservative, but as I like to say, they were JFK Democrats. And at that time, many Detroiters, black Detroiters in particular, JFK uh, Democrats, 
And so that's how I was raised. One of the other influences uh, uh, in my early life, well, actually both my mom and dad, my mom was a volunteer poll worker. So at an early age, uh, she certainly taught me the importance of the vote and why you should vote. But the second part of that, she always inspired me to not just vote for party, uh, but vote for the right person. And so that was some of the early teachings uh, of my mom. And then my mom, after myself and siblings left uh, in record time, I watched her get an undergraduate degree and a master's. Uh, so she inspired me uh, to continue on with my education. Uh, on the other hand, my dad also uh, with a volunteer spirit, he certainly served in the US Army. Uh, he was a military police officer. Uh, in fact, when he got out of the Army, he had tried to become a Detroit police officer. Uh, it was not common during those times that uh, uh, black men were hired as police officers. And I asked him, because oh, I wanted to know the background. He said, well, son, uh, I was disqualified because I couldn't do the rope climb on the first go, go round. I said, well, why didn't you go back? He said, well, he thought about his mother uh, was kind of against him becoming a police officer, so he never pursued it. But what he did do, uh, especially during the 1967 Detroit uh, riots. Uh, he was Detroit Police Reserve, uh, and he worked at the station uh, in the neighborhood we grew up in, which was the 10th Precinct, ironically the epicenter of where the Detroit 67 riots took place. And I remember those days. I was 11 years old then. Uh, I thought to myself I did not want to be a police officer. I remember tanks. I remember hearing gunshots. Uh, but as luck would have it, nine years later, I'm in Detroit Police Academy, 19 years old. In fact, like my dad, my first uh, attempt, I was disqualified. My mother didn't want me to be a police officer, and uh, they said I didn't weigh enough at the time. So uh, I ended up eating bananas on the, certainly, uh, that was what the recruiter gave me as uh, an example of how to gain weight quickly. Uh, but I did something, I, I joke about it now. Uh, I went into the, the follow-up and I had a couple of little small bricks in my pocket. I got on the scale, I weighed enough, and he said, hey, what's in your pocket? I said, some, <laughs> I said, some small boulders. He said, wow, you, you really must want to be a, a police officer uh, and the rest is history, I got hired. But even before making that decision, uh, what I really wanted to do, uh, I went to Cass Technical High School here in Detroit a public school, I had school choice, and uh, I matriculated in automotive technology because I wanted to be an automotive engineer. And so after high school, I entered an engineering school, then what it was called Lawrence Institute of Technology. And then, but at night, I worked at Chrysler Corporation on the assembly line. That's why I call myself a blue collar candidate because I come from uh, significant blue collar roots uh, I worked on the assembly line to the point I got laid off. And clearly sometime after that, uh, I joined the Detroit Police Department. Only stayed two and a half years. Um, the mayor of Detroit then, Coleman Young, laid off 1,500 police officers. Uh, and this was following a month following the Republican National Convention that was held in Detroit. And so I ended up uh, making a decision, I had two choices very difficult choice. So Toledo, Ohio was looking to hire former Detroit police officers and then LAPD 
was also looking to hire former Detroit police officers. But I think what drove me, I had to make a decision. Do I go to Toledo where it still snows? It gets cold. <laughs> the selling point for Toledo, it was 45 minutes from home. Uh, but I was looking at Adam 12. You might remember that show many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting, looking at, this, at the show. I said, wow, those police are beautiful. They're all in good shape. And the rest is history. I went out to the West Coast, uh, got hired by the LAPD, ended up serving almost three decades, rose through the ranks. Uh, uh, as I retired to pursue my ultimate goal of becoming a police chief, um, I was a commanding officer of one of LA's busier stations uh, in South LA. But I had some very interesting uh, encounters throughout my almost three decades. Uh, one that comes to mind, and I remember vividly, was the Rodney King uh, incident that subsequently uh, there was a riot and a lot of other issues. Uh, that kind of actually thrusted me uh, into the national spotlight. Uh, people converged, media converged on LA and really wanted to know what it was like being in uh, the LAPD, which they uh, characterized as a uh, a white supremacist police department. And how can a black officer work under such conditions? And certainly that was not the case. Uh, I even had a chance to meet, and you probably know her, your viewers know, Maxine Waters. She <clears throat> called me to a meeting and essentially said the same thing. Her comments to me were very vile. And I really believe it was at that point uh, in my career and my political leanings that I, I really began to question why I was a Democrat. Uh, but the rest is history. I ended up retiring, moved on to Portland, Maine, where I became the chief of police in the, in the, in the city of Portland in Maine. Stayed there for two and a half years from there, had another great opportunity. Uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, became the chief of police there for two and a half years. You know, oftentimes, uh, Ed, I get asked this question. Have you ever thought about politics? No, I hadn't. In fact, uh, I've been a public servant for 44 years. And as you know, public servants serve people. Uh, I didn't have much use for politics, no interest in it. But as I was transitioning from Cincinnati, local conservative businessmen approached me. They liked the work that I did in Cincinnati and says, hey, uh, we want you to stay. Don't go to Detroit. Detroit's a mess. Stay here in Cincinnati. It's a great city, and we want you to run as our mayor. So I was really humbled by that. But I want to reflect, because I know many of, in your audience, including yourself, you know, have a very strong and healthy relationship with God. And so my best friend, who I went through the police academy with in Los Angeles, ironically, who played very short time with the Dallas Cowboys until he was cut because of an injury. Uh, he was my life friend, lifelong friend. And so uh, he um, he got killed in the line of duty. He was a SWAT officer. Uh, it was an active shooter situation. Uh, this mentally ill suspect had just killed three of his family members. My best friend went in along with two other SWAT officers immediately. As soon as he made entry, he took a single shot to the head fatally. But the reason why I bring Randy up, and oh, and by the way, Randy, in addition to being a SWAT officer, 
he used to give back uh, mentoring and spiritually educating kids in the Watts community in Los Angeles. He would minister to them. And so he was very involved in the ministry, uh, but he was a big, tough SWAT officer. But one year before his untimely death, for no apparent reason, he just started calling me governor. He kept calling me governor. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm governor of what? Certainly not California. He said, no, you're gonna be a governor one day. And I dismissed it and I, I challenged him and said, well, you must mean chief of police because I had set a goal early in my career. But I wanted you to hear that story because it's prophetic mm-hmm. that I sit here so many years later and it's been about 15 years since the death of my friend. So it totally, he started making that statement 16 years ago. So here I sit. But anyway, I left Cincinnati to, and certainly had an opportunity to come back to Detroit. Uh, as you know, Detroit went through a bankruptcy, went under emergency management, but Detroit residents, certainly that was not uh, popular. Uh, I came in in a very unpopular time. Uh, the community had lost all confidence in the police department. Police officers were demonized. They were defunded even before they called it defunded. Uh, by the former mayor, Dave Bing. So I had a big challenge ahead. Uh, We had to address crime issues, uh, bringing back confidence in the police department, uh, but we were able to get it done. Uh, We were able to raise the morale of men and women. I was able to restructure the police department, open up police uh, stations that were closed. We were under a godforsaken 13-year federal oversight called consent decree. Mm-hmm. We got out of that within one year of that. On the community side, we began to build trust with the community. Uh, they finally realized and saw that there was a police chief, a police department that generally cared about safety. Uh, we worked very hard on those, both those fronts. Uh, also, and I must tell you this part, because most times as I've traveled the state, People want to know this, Ed. Why didn't Detroit burn in 2020 where other cities around our country were on fire? There were riots, there were looting, police cars damaged. And, but why not Detroit? One of the things that I did early on uh, as I transitioned into Detroit, I met with local activist groups. Uh, they were kind of the de facto protectors of the city. They they had no confidence in the police department. I looked at some of these groups as kind of militant, uh, but I knew I had to sit down in rooms with folks to discuss what was most important. How do we work together? How do we mend relationships? Even though I knew, they knew, we certainly weren't gonna agree on everything. And I think it's important to make note of that because when we look at what's happening in our state, in our country, we're very partisan. We're very divided. When we're divided to the degree we are today, nothing gets done. Look, I get I'm a Republican, but that doesn't mean I can't work with some Democrats. Some I'm not gonna be able to work with. They're not, they're not gonna wanna work with me. But we're gonna get in rooms together because as a public servant, I know this, a public servant serves people. This is about Michigan's business. It's about the residents of Michigan. and so. To be successful in that endeavor, 
you have to work with people. You really, truly, you know, you hear politicians say all the time, well, I'm going to work across the aisle. And it just doesn't get done. And it's even more divided today. But we did that. But back to 2020, uh, one of the things that we did very well, uh, leadership, certainly I was on the ground on those few days where things got rough. Uh, There were several attempts to attack our police officer. They did. Uh, They wanted to take over and, and create this autonomous zone in Detroit like they did in Seattle. They were unsuccessful. They wanted to take over police stations. That didn't happen. So my point is this. I was on the ground. I wanted them to see me. And they knew that we had a zero tolerance for any level of criminality. Of the 100 plus days, on the 100 plus days, um, there were probably seven days where the agitators begin throwing projectiles at our police officers. And so I made the decision that we use force at different times so it wouldn't happen. But most importantly, Ed, we never retreated. And I bring that up because if you remember the images coming out of some of these other major cities across our country, I know you saw where there were streets where looting was taking place, buildings were set afire, police cars damaged, But here's what most of them had in common. Where were the police? Police had retreated. And because they retreated, the mob took over. Well, I believe they were often told to retreat, am I right? Absolutely, some of the mayors absolutely uh, gave that direction. Shame on the police chief that went along with that direction. Uh, Fortunately, uh, my mayor didn't interfere. He called and we talked because I had made a decision. If I had had a mayor to tell me to stand down and let's have a summer of love, let's let them just do their thing, uh, that would have been a day that one or two things would have happened. I would have resigned or would have been fired. I want to stop you there for a second because two things you said so far have struck me as, uh, as, as having some courage. And one is that uh, you actually referred to your friend's words over you as prophetic. These days, that takes a lot of courage just to show any kind of religious uh, experience whatsoever, and especially one that relies on God. And two, the fact that you were willing to step away from the position, that you weren't so eager to grasp onto it if it, if it interfered with you doing the right thing. So I, I appreciate that. I'm sure the citizens of Detroit do, too. So thank you, please. I appreciate you uh, saying that. I think the other last part of that whole 2020 experience, I talked about those activists that I met with that we didn't always see the world through the same lens. Um, We began to build relationship over time. And also during 2020, I was able to pick up the phone up, make the call, and uh, they came out to support what we're doing. So I know we're coming up on, a, I think, a break. And so, yeah. uh, but and then I want to talk a little bit about the platform when we come back, because I think it's important for your listeners and viewers to know where I'm staying on, on a number of issues. Exactly. That's my plan. I appreciate this. Uh, we're going to take a commercial break in a few seconds, and we'll come back and we'll talk about issues. Thank you very much. Derek, how many seconds we got? So the music has started. 
Hey, folks, enjoy the music. We'll be back with Chief James Craig right after the break. Stay tuned. You're American Heritage. We were made to be courageous. We were made to lead the way. We could be the generation that finally breaks the chains. We were made to be courageous. We were made to be courageous. We were warriors on the front lines, standing unafraid. Well, thanks for returning to Your American Heritage. I am Ed Bondarenkum, your host, and this show is available by podcast. Spread it out to your friends. Go to whamradio.com, the podcast page, and you'll see how to do that. Joining me is former Detroit Police Chief James Craig. He's running for the governor of Michigan. And, uh, well, we're we're listening to him describe some personal history and uh, uh, some of his philosophical approach to... uh, administration and policing and um uh you were telling me during the break that you met denzel washington as part of your uh uh presence in in uh la is that correct oh yeah i had and i gotta tell you he is a a wonderful man a wonderful spiritual man by the way and i don't know if a lot of people know that because you know when you think of hollywood uh there's not much of a conversation surrounding god but mm-hmm. uh, he's he's the exception a very pro-law enforcement. Uh, in fact, uh, the movie Ricochet, I had a chance to work with him for an entire shift. He rode along with me, and he really wanted to learn and get some insights uh, into what it was like to be a police officer. Because half of the movie, he played an LAPD officer, uh, and then the second half, he was a district attorney. Uh, I don't want to give much of the movie away. It's, a, it's an older movie now, of course, but certainly one uh, worth watching. Uh, but I came up in a recent interview he did. He couldn't remember my name because it was so many years ago. And he was being interviewed. And during the interview, he said, look, I don't support all this madness, defund, dismantle the police. And he talked about uh, the goodness of police. And he went on to say and used an example. He said, I was working with this officer once uh, preparing for a movie. Uh, and a call came out of an armed suspect. Uh, he said, this officer, I've watched him go to the scene, de-escalate the situation without using a shred of force. He's talking about me. What it was, the band was armed with a knife. I got out of the car. I told Denzel, you stay in the car. And <laughs> um, he said, well, no, no problem with that. <laughs> I stay here. You do what you do. But I guess what he was most fascinated was how I was able to confront this armed suspect and de-escalate it. Now, candidly, I forgot the encounter. I've had many encounters throughout my now 44 years in law enforcement, but he remembered it. It stood out for him. So I wanted to share that for your listeners. Um, but but anyway, uh, a, a you know, great I want to say mm-hmm. I want to say that uh, although this show is not an, endor- an official endorsement of your candidacy, uh, I just want to, you know, understand where you're coming from and make a decision based on that, help others do the same. Nonetheless, 
Uh, I've had the discussion over the years with different managers I've worked for and different people I've worked who have worked for me. And uh, there's a difference between management and leadership. And I've said management is where you set up the structure and you get stuff from here to there and you make decisions based on materials you have and don't have. And then leadership is getting to do getting somebody to do something they don't necessarily want to do and then making them feel good about it. It sounds like you may have saved a guy's life that day and it just, it demonstrated leadership. And I'm, I appreciate that example you gave us, thanks. No, I appreciate you bringing it up. And that's something that leadership is one of the things that I talk a lot about on the campaign trail. I'm most passionate, you know, I have a philosophy uh, uh, as a leader, you have to love those you're leading. Uh, and I've, I've had the good fortune of leading men and women who serve to protect others, but I also had the, the good fortune of leading in a community uh, and improving the quality of life of folks. So just like a governor, you know, uh, the core responsibility of someone in that seat or in the seat of a mayor is public safety first and foremost. Uh, and you have to have leaders who, who lead by example, who are transparent, ethical, uh, who are not contradictory. Oh, and by the way, acceptance of responsibility when things don't go well. <laughs> and, and that's unfortunately with so many politicians today, they don't accept responsibility. Uh, they will pivot away from bad. But you know, when you work for people, we owe people the truth. And we owe people an explanation of what happened, what you did about it, what you're going to do moving forward so that there's not a reoccurrence. That's what leaders do. And so, again, there's a shortage of it today. And so when I look at my candidacy and places I've been, what I've done leading through crisis, not one crisis, but, but many, uh, I understand what it takes. Right now, our state's in crisis, our, our nation's in crisis, and there's just frankly and candidly a shortage of leaders. Amen. You're absolutely right. So I want to ask you first off, let's 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 ask this. On a scale of one to ten, with uh Governor Whitmer being a zero and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis being a ten, where would you where do you see yourself? Well, I strive to be a 10 like Governor DeSantis. In fact, when I look at what he's done for the great state of Florida, uh, I've had the good uh, the good fortune to have met him listen to him, uh, and I like everything he's doing. I mean, he is a leader. He'll take the hits, he'll take ownership, and I gotta tell you what he most recently did, um, and, and I made a distinction, I was uh, talking about it on some news show. Uh, what's recently going on, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer when it comes to schools that it's the parents that are stakeholders. I vehemently reject this whole CRT, racist indoctrination. Thank you. But also what I see going on in Florida with uh, this sexual orientation and gender identification that they're teaching to K through three. To me, that's madness. Now look, if a parent or guardian wants to teach their child that, so be it. But that should not be done by a teacher. And to do nothing about it is shameful. And we have lost fights because I gotta tell you, the true stakeholder in the schools, parents, with a focus on children. The only thing I said I would do different as Michigan's governor, uh, I would go a little higher than third grade. I would say K through six. Again, 
that's the kind of conversation that shouldn't be had and directed by teachers. I mean, what is next? And, and, and don't think for a moment that some of that has not migrated to our great state. I'm starting to hear somebody uh, brought it up at a meeting I attended. And so it, it's just amazing what we're now finding out uh, after as we, you know, from the height of the pandemic to where we are right now is what our, the indoctrination that our children are subjected to. We have a friend, Ilona Rugg, and there are others that we know uh, who can who can and have attested to that. Ilona was just recently at the state uh, capitol on the day day of prayer, speaking there, and uh, yeah, she's she's while she was still a teacher, she was under the nom de plume of uh, um, X Donna X because she was afraid of repercussions. But she'd give us regular reports. Actually, wrote an article in my newspaper when I <clears throat> had a newspaper at one point. So that answers the question of what can and will you do to protect our children from these predations. It's here and we need to do something. And obviously it's it would also have to be a legislative effort, but you would be willing to institute to work towards that and institute legislation? Oh, absolutely. I would be, and, and again, you said something key, work with the lawmakers. You know, let's face it. Yeah, you know, Republicans are uh, dominant in the legislature right now. But this cannot be a partisan issue. There's some things that candidly are not partisan. I mean, there are Democrats, independents, Republicans that do not want their children being indoctrinated by this racist indoctrination called CRT. Mm -hmm. And we have to stand in unison, but you need to have a leader who doesn't make it partisan. And the way I look at the world, if you're the governor and you find out that this racist indoctrination is being uh, embedded in a curriculum or sexual orientation or sec uh, uh, gender identification, if you say nothing, you're complicit. You're complicit, mm -hmm. that means yeah. you're in agreement. And so uh, this is what she needs to be held accountable for. These are the questions she's gonna have to answer before people cast their vote. Okay, that's great. Oh, we just saw this week that there was a leak in the Supreme Court that it looks like the justices will, and I think in response to prayer, that the justices will overturn Roe v. Wade shortly. And I believe that Governor Whitmer believes the same thing too, because she is attacking the 1931 law, I think it is, 1936. I forget which it is. Yes, I think it's 38, yep. Okay, our friend Dave Coleman was on uh, a couple weeks ago telling us about this and that she is trying to throw this law out. And of course, Dana Nessel uh, will not uh, protect the state from this attack on its law. But with if indeed Roe v. Wade gets passed, or gets, uh, I'm sorry, blocked, excuse me, right. and uh, you become governor, what would you do to protect our laws regarding abortion in the state? Well, I'm pro-life and, and so, one of the things, and I talked briefly about the importance of bringing lawmakers together uh, because we have to be practical. Uh, I'm pro-life. I'm gonna say something that could be viewed by some of your listeners as controversial, and maybe not. You know, having been a longtime law enforcement uh, officer and in the state of California, you may know that they have something called capital punishment. Of course, I didn't give much thought to it then, uh, but certainly, uh, being a pro-lifer, I mean, how can I have it one way and not the other? 
So when man makes decision, well, you've been convicted of first degree murder and by the laws in the state of California, at some point you're put to death. However, here's the problem. You can't have it on one side and not the other. I believe firmly that only God can make that decision on when there is life or when there is not life. And that said, uh, I firmly believe that we shouldn't take the life of a convicted murderer because we as humans, and it's been shown time and again, that individuals have been wrongly convicted for murder, only that when that came known, they were let out uh, from their life sentence. Again, so I'm just real clean on it, pro-life. Okay, and I'm gonna tell you something, you and I are in agreement there. Now, I understand people who say that uh, biblically, uh, there's an injunction there, capital punishment, blah, blah, blah. But I'm trying to remember the lady's name in Texas that George Bush did, would not commute her execution. I'm not saying pardon her, but wouldn't commute it to a life sentence. It's Carly Faye something or other. And it was rather a well-known case at the time because the warden and the guards were begging for her life. They were all going to bat for her because she had turned her heart around in prison, given right. her life to Jesus, and was a role model for the other women there. She was still executed. You know, it's called a penitentiary, like I alluded to in the beginning. I'd like to see a lot of these people brought to a place of repentance in a penitentiary, because that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to bring you to a place of penance and, right. and reflection on what you did, not train you how to be a better criminal the next time you get out. Right. So, yes, I agree. I'm, I'd rather not kill. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that there's a... a biblical injunction against execution. I'm just saying that I think it's a better thing to give well, people every last chance to repent. You know, part of the, the hypocrisy that we hear on the on, on the left all the times is, and just like when I, I, I made my, my position known, when you talk about uh, children being subjected to this sexual indoctrination K through three, well, that's just plain, plain and simple, it's just wrong. And and so, but and yet, then, and but yet, yet sir. Here, here's the other thing. I, I want to make this real quick point on that note. So when you talk against it, then they say, well, you're anti-gay or anti-LGBTQ. That is not true. I'm not anti-gay. I'm not anti-LGBTQ. Heck, I've been the chief in three police departments and every one <laughs> of them, I established an LGBTQ coordinator or liaison to be a bridge between police department and uh, the LGBTQ community. I've done that, but I'm not gonna sit back and allow teachers to indoctrinate our children in that way. I'm just not gonna do it. Especially since they can't pray for them also. Right, you know? they can't do that. Or near them, but they can subjugate them to that. Let's move on, okay, that's great, I, I appreciate that. There's uh, two other things. Well, we talked about education a bit, but something is really near and dear to my heart and a lot of my listeners is gun law. So let's ask you a few questions. Where do you stand on red flag laws? You mean in terms of if a person's mentally ill? Or deemed mentally ill, let's put it that way. Well, here's where I'm at with that. I mean, what's the type of mental illness? And is it legitimate? I mean, let's face it, given my lengthy, lengthy history uh, in law enforcement, having gone to more crisis calls that I care to admit, armed suspects 
I talked about the situation involving my best friend. Uh, that person that murdered my best friend was deemed mentally ill. He was mentally ill. I have seen so many incidents. So I think that if somebody's rendered uh, incapacitated mentally, they shouldn't have guns. But it shouldn't be just some arbitrary, well, when the person was 13, they were depressed. I mean, I think that's a, that's an overreach. That's a, that's a government overreach. But I do think it's important to keep uh, guns out of the hands of prohibited persons, violent mm -hmm. felons, someone deemed to be uh, mentally ill, but not just. Are you following where I'm going with it? I mean, because oh, I, I fully I fully agree. There's a fine line there. It's just that when it's a tool, a weapon of the state to de uh, uh, de gun, I guess that might be a word, de gun the, the populace, you know, just because somebody's spouse or a neighbor got upset with them, that's, there needs to be a process. That's wrong. And, and let me just say this for you and your listeners. Um, I was on the cover of NRA magazine, not once, but twice. I'm probably the only chief of a major city that spoke in support of arming law abiding citizens and my comment then went on to say that law-abiding citizens who are armed can and do have an impact on reducing violent crime. I believe it. And there's a special story that goes along with that because um, my transition there really did take place. There's that word again. I know, another transition. And that was a transitional point for me. And, and maybe your listeners would be interested in hearing it. So. In Portland, Maine, the chief of police uh, is responsible for the approval of concealed weapon permit. Um, so I had a stack waiting for me. And, you know, coming out of California, you know, California is totally anti-gun. And to get a concealed weapons per permit is an act of God. I mean, it was rare that anybody uh, could get a concealed weapons permit. So my orientation then, I, didn't, I started to deny uh, the permits and my assistant chief and some of the other staff came running into my office. Chief, do you know where you are? And I said, well, yeah, I'm in, I'm not in Texas, am I? And so they, they laughed, we laughed about it. And they said, well, here in the great state of Maine, we love our guns. I said, okay, sounds like something they'd say in Texas. So then, but this is what got me. And, and this is what I never forgot. This was a Friday. Assistant Chief said, have you noticed something? Unlike the cities you came from, we do have armed law-abiding citizens. And have you also noted that we have low violent crime? It does make a difference. So I went home that weekend, began to reflect, and it was a pivotal turning point because he was right. I came back and of course I approved every permit. And so I remember telling that story or at least that statement about law-abiding citizens who are armed can make an, uh, a difference uh, in reducing violent crime. Even former President Obama attacked me and I don't know what his exact words were, but he basically thought it was foolish for anybody who sits as a chief of police to make such an irresponsible remark. 
See, the left will always talk about the gun, the gun, the gun. We got to do gun control. We got an uptick in crime, gun control. No, you know what it is? We have to do criminal control. That's what's missing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We only have a few minutes left. I want to ask you, what about constitutional carry? Absolutely support it. In fact, um, Michigan will have constitutional carry as, as, as your governor. Uh, I know there are about, I think it's seven or eight states right now that have constitutional carry. I think there's 28 right now. and We're surrounded by Indiana and Ohio at the moment. I think Indiana just went over Ohio a little bit ago, and it's about time Michigan caught up. So uh, high-capacity magazines. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, doing my early transition, it's, you know, people go back and opposition research on me, and they say, hey, you were when you were chief in Cincinnati, uh, you almost supported that magazines should be no more than 10 rounds. Well, I was going through transition, and, you know, as a person who embraced the Second Amendment, uh, it was evolution. You know, I grow every single day. And so uh, I have no problem with high capacity magazines. Look, here's the, the bottom line issue. Let's focus on criminals with guns. Criminals will never follow the law. These laws are designed to do what? To restrict us law abiding citizens. Yeah, amen, that's right. So uh, how about the roads? You got a plan for the roads? The roads, roads are not fixed. Let me just say this, I was reading an op-ed piece recently uh, and what they said, the roads are 4% better than when she took office. She then Where? goes, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, whoever wrote the op-ed piece, 4% still is not a passing grade. Yeah. <laughs> if, if we agree that the roads are 4% better, but that was your primary platform, Governor Whitmer, you failed. You have just absolutely failed. But then she goes on to say, the reason why the roads are not more improved because the Republican senators blocked her wanting to raise the gas sales tax to 45 cent. Well, you didn't run on that. You ran that you were gonna fix the road, which she, which mm -hmm. she should have admitted. She failed to build a coalition with the lawmakers so that she could get the roads fixed. Look, in my mind, I look at the great state of Florida and uh, you've been to Florida. Mm -hmm. Their roads are pristine. Mm -hmm. But have you noticed something? They don't else? know how to drive. They don't know how to drive down there, but the roads are great. Well, I, I don't <laughs> want to talk about Michiganders. I've seen some, <laughs> I've seen some things here. You know, you forget I was a a, a long time cop. <laughs> I'll leave it there. I don't, I don't want to offend anyone. People in Michigan like to what I call tailgate. They don't create, you know, a safe <laughs> distance between cars when they're on the highway. You've seen it. If you've done someone, it. Oh, you've done it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I but, repent. Uh, it, it really comes down to being able to build a coalition and collaborate with folks so that you can do, look, the roads do have to be fixed. Uh, we got to fix okay. water. We have to work on our interest. And oh, by the way, I support line five staying open. Thank you. Thank you. I okay. Uh, oh, illegal immigration. That was a big deal. Look, this administration at the federal level was significantly failed. And so, Chief, why are you talking about immigration? We don't have a problem here. Yes, we do. We They're have pushed in our that. communities. It's right. We have something called fentanyl. And we have, uh, you know, uh, certainly sex trafficking that's going on. So 
this affects every state. It's a direct concern, but I know we're running out of time. And I wish I had a little more time because I go into, I talked about education. I'd go a little deeper than that. I talked about, you know, making us a top 10 state, economic development. And then lastly, something that's near and dear to my heart is public safety. We know we have some woke prosecutors and woke judges here in the great state of Michigan who are given a get out of jail card to some of these yeah. violent predatory criminals. So I'll close on that note. And I, I just Thanks, want to Chief. Thank you. Thanks, Chief James Craig, for joining us today. You're American Heritage. God bless America and America bless God. Come back next week at 2 p.m. New time.